With the cost of seemingly everything going up and the value of wages going down, on this episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast, we ask, could now be the time to learn some cost-saving but simple DIY skills? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Great, Chris. Great to be back. I'm excited about our topic tonight. We're going to be talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart. We're going to be talking about do-it-yourself and reenacting and the kind of skills that are really, really helpful for people to learn and to know about if they're going to do historical reenacting. Cool. Well, without further ado, let's get into it. Well, I guess for the starters, I'd just like to talk a little bit about, you know, why to do stuff yourself. And certainly there are a lot of artisans and craftsmen in the historical reenacting space who are uh, more than happy to, you know, do all the work for you in exchange for a pile of money. And that's a method that works great for some people. Well, I was going to say, Chris, that a benefit of doing things yourself is cost saving, you know? That's definitely a huge benefit. Like, I think people, a lot of people who spend money on uh, craftsmen and artisans and, you know, getting them to fix, maintain, repair, customize, tailor, make stuff for them, so on and so forth, they don't really realize how absurdly easy it can be to do some of this Sure. Stuff. It blew my mind that I can sew my own buttons on my tunic, you know, or even, like, I have much more limited experience with this, but the idea of, like, re-sewing leather gear, you know? Like, it's possible if, you know, one of your tornister straps blows out, you can re-stitch that, you know? It's just, you know, it maybe get the linen thread and uh, prop- and big needle from, like, a craft store, you know? When I started reenacting, I, uh, I knew how to sew, like patches on clothes, uh, repairing buttons, doing minor sewing repairs, but that was basically it uh, for me for sewing. So when I had a problem, if I had a D-ring on my Y-straps that blew out, I had to find someone to fix that. Uh, There were some people who set up at an annual event that I used to go to that spent time at the event repairing gear, and I would have damaged gear that would remain in its damaged state for months until I could go to that event where I knew that there was someone who could fix it. And it never even really occurred to me to try to do it myself. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't actually, when I started reenacting, have some somebody like that in the local scene. So I actually remember I would send stuff out to people, you know, where I would try to find some sort of artisan in my town, you know, some sort of like shoemaker who might be able to like fix a piece of leather or something, you know? Sure. And I had mixed success. I, I you know, sometimes I would take the thing and I would, I would, get a good result and sometimes they would do what I regarded as a real botched job um, and the reality is like your average like local shoemaker is is used to dealing with modern shoes and is not used to dealing with you know like boots and uh, leather gear of the German army in World War II. Sure. Um, I just think that in addition also to the cost savings and uh, kind of the value of being able to um, do it yourself. Having these skills is just really valuable and makes you valuable in historical reenactment. You know, if you can uh, show other people how to do this, you could be a resource for other people. Even just, uh, you know, whether or not you're actually doing work for other people, just showing that it can be done. Uh, being being able to offer some uh, encouragement, some advice to people who are kind of looking for... Um, you know, somebody who can work on their gear. Look, the reality here, the bottom line is that having skills is like really valuable in reenactment. It's like really good. And um, every reenactor should be seeking to level up their skills at like every opportunity that they can. 
I agree with that. I think it's a, a it's a pride thing too. Like if you actually accomplish something yourself, you're gonna feel a lot better about it in the end. Um, just like teaching yourself a task or like learning learning a task, there's there's a real sense of accomplishment and pride as opposed to, you know, paying somebody else to do it and being out the money. There are things that I used to pay other people to do where when I found out how to do them myself, I was straight up embarrassed that I had paid other people to do it. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I remember I paid people to sew buttons on my tunic because I did not feel confident at doing that. And then, you know, I I had some practice, and uh, now I, I actually feel very good about sewing buttons. On t I actually find it to be like a very sort of therapeutic, uh, relaxing task. You know, sometimes I'll do it. You know, if it's like a rainy day or if I'm like, or I have something on my mind, I'll just, I'll sew buttons and it, it makes me feel better. Well, we've, we've been talking about sewing a little bit here. So like, let's just dive into it. To me, that is a primary skill that a reenactor basically absolutely needs to have. Like if you don't know how to put buttons on your, your uniform, you're going to be having a real hard time in reenacting. Sure, and I mean, I will say that I'm sure that most German soldiers in World War II could not do complicated repairs, or many could not, but these, growing up at the time period in which they did in the 1920s and 30s, they would have known how to affect limited repairs on their clothing. They would have known how to sew a button on. They would have known how to darn a sock. They would have known how to put, like, a crude patch on... Uh, on a piece of cloth so yeah i i absolutely believe that what you're saying chris is uh, is right soldiers were tasked with maintaining their own gear and uh you know we as reenactors are largely tasked with the same thing and sewing is really not hard it's not some kind of like uh, master skill that can only be done by an accomplished and experienced classically trained tailor or seamstress. Am I the best, you know, person at sewing in the world? No, I'm definitely not. And in fact, there are some repairs, like especially involving a machine, where I would rather if somebody else did it. Actually, something that I want to do this fall or winter is get better at using a sewing machine. And even when I level up, I feel like there are some things that, you know... I I don't feel so confident in doing myself, but that said, I think it's kind of the it's kind of on me to learn, you know, and it's on everybody too. I mean, when you're using your reenactment gear, um, you're going to have to fix it. You know, it's part of the maintenance of the gear. Sure. You're going to have buttons that blow off. You're going to have holes, snags, uh, wear holes, and little damages to your clothing that you're going to have to mend. There's no way around it. And I've heard, you know, some people make the argument that they want to buy high-quality goods because those, you know, don't develop holes as easily. And I, You know, let me tell you, I've seen Chinese-made tunics and German-made tunics develop holes over the years, you know? Sure. This stuff happens with wear. This stuff happens with use. It's It's a fact of life. I mean, just the button threads alone, these things are sewn on with um, heavy-duty linen thread. But, you know, it's it's a natural material. They didn't have polyester thread. They didn't have, like, dental floss, you know. So um, with time, those threads are going to give way. There's just no way around it. Yeah, truly. And it's not always possible to wait until... Uh, you know, the next event or whatever to repair your gear in certain situations. I mean, a sewing kit has saved me so many times in the field. Like, uh, for example, uh, the suspenders that we use, most of them are like some kind of quasi-antique or military surplus type of a thing. Are you talking about what happened at the, Getty, at the, uh, at the event last summer? I had no suspenders at that event. <laughs> I forgot to bring them. So this was, an, you know, one of the times, one of the ways, or more than, you know, this has happened more than once with regard to uh, saving me in the field, but when my suspenders have blown out, basically. Being able to fix that in the field um, is like an important thing to holding my, pant, holding my pants up. Sure. And, you know, Ben, you alluded to the event that we did last summer. Uh, at that event, I just totally forgot to bring any suspenders. But fortunately, I was able to um, 
use my sewing kit. I had another button in there and some thread and I affixed another button to the waistband of my trousers so that I could make the waist of my trousers tighter to help keep my pants from falling down with no suspenders at all. And it, it worked out all right for the time, right? Yeah, it got me through the weekend. Yeah. The weekend would have been much different if I didn't have that sewing kit with me or if, you know, if there wasn't like someone else with a sewing kit or whatever. If possible, and I think this is just like a personal thing, I try to do sewing at home as opposed to in the field. But that said, it can be a really cool activity, you know, to be repairing like, uh, you know, your trousers or your bread bag or something in the field, you know, if you have some downtime and if there's, there's something like, I like the idea of, br- I do like the idea of bringing something to an event to repair, you know, I personally just find myself doing most of the stuff at home. Sure. Um, another aspect of sewing that we haven't even really touched on is, uh, sewing insignia on a uniform, which mm. I just think is such a valuable skill to be able to have. I think it's cool. I just don't trust myself to do it in the intricate manner that uh, that a lot of uh, factory originals were done. Don't get me wrong. You see some fl- some sloppy factory insignia, but I just like mine to be really good. Um, you know, like I like Any, mine. anybody can reach that level of proficiency. Mm. I, I is my assertion. Sure. You know, it's really it may seem intricate. Like people get really kind of I think lost in the weeds of folding bevo insignia and what style of stitch but it's like it's these things weren't done by you know people who had graduated from university to fold and sew pieces of fabric Mm. you know it's definitely a thing that can be done and i would um all my uniform insignia is sewn by me and i and i like the way it all looks and compare i think it holds stands up very well to original application styles and do I have skill in sewing? Yes, but it's skill in sewing that I got from practicing over the course of years of uh, working on reenactment gear, basically. Sure. You know, sure. I didn't get any kind of like special training. I, I learned it by doing it. And I really think that anybody can do it. Um, you know, I remember just having such a hard time when I was younger. I got promoted to Unteroffizier. And oh, the tress. You got all this tress and, you know, how how to get that on there. So I basically, uh, I did this, you know, really elaborate sort of hand sewing. It was an extremely time-consuming process using these tiny invisible stitches so that it didn't look crudely applied. Had I had access to a sewing machine and known how to use one, I could have put that dress on in seconds. Just to pick your brain, Chris, uh, most original uniforms you see with tress, machine or hand done? Usually it's machine done. Hand done is a thing that existed, you know. Uh, There's I don't know that I could really think of any insignia application that was machine done all the time. Sure. Um, And even stuff that's usually hand done could be done by a machine sometimes among the millions of uniforms worn by the millions of men. Sure. You see, uh, I mean, I feel like somebody once compiled a diagram that showed the different sort of styles of breast eagle. And, you know, there were just, there were so many, and Litson too, and there were so many different ways that these things were applied. You know, I think it's cool. It's cool to study. It is. It's actually still a topic of debate on some level among collectors. Um, You know, there's stuff that shows up in original photographs that nobody would believe was originally applied. Uh, A lot of collectors like to see certain types of styles and don't like to see other styles, although all of them may be correct. Well, we've talked about this before, Chris, but uh, I know, like, or I feel like you're alluding to some of the photographs that show very crudely applied, like, reissue insignia, you know, like Litson that looked like it was put on by a five-year-old, you know? Or um, I feel like I saw it was like an SS tunic that had some sort of original provenance and the collar tabs looked like they were sewn on by a child. Sure. You know, like I think this thing came out of like Arnhem or something and like it had this, it it, it had these terribly applied tabs, you know. Yeah, they, they <laughs> probably were applied by the soldier himself. But look, the thing is, even the, the factory style applications, I mean, these things this is something that can be done, you know, and sewing, uh, even, uh, like officer shoulder straps that are sewn into a tunic, uh, seam at the shoulder, um, officer collar tabs, which are very often hand applied officer breast eagles, which are usually hand applied. Um, 
It's a simple matter of learning how to make very small uh, stitches and being very careful with your stitch placement. Um, you know, I guess if somebody has uh, some kind of medical disorder where they can't control their limbs or, you know, or just... I feel like I'm being called out here, but excuse me. <laughs> Even you could do it. You can't control <laughs> limbs, but you could do it. It's like if you can, if you can write, read and write, you can, you know, you can use a, a needle and be careful with it and, and apply things. Sure. And, uh, you know, and using a sewing machine is, is really not hard. Sure. Um, it was daunting for me. I, I can't believe how many years I went without... Uh, as a reenactor without learning how to use a sewing machine. Mm. And then once I did know how to use it, it was just such a total game changer for me. Well, I do. I, I do. Feel, that is a goal of mine for the fall and winter to get to to learn to use a sewing machine. I say get better at, but the reality is I need to learn how to use the thing. So, yeah, that's like a goal of mine for this winter. I mean, once I, I went very, very quickly. Once I got a sewing machine, it was uh, like a matter of months from... Uh, learning how to sew a square patch on a piece of fabric to making an M34 cap, making an M43 cap. I, I made the collar bind that I use for reenacting. Um, well, you also filled your house with sewing machines. Well, it became a, it became a kind of a hobby of its own, but it didn't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I enjoyed, uh, restoring the machines, having different sewing machines for different purposes. But, um, one person with one basic straight stitch sewing machine, uh, whether it's vintage or modern, you can do so much. You can't make like a field blouse, unfortunately, sure. because there's, you know, it's like there's button issues with buttonholes and stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, you could certainly make a lot of different kinds of equipment items. We have this, I think, a kind of erroneous belief in 20th century reenacting and World War II reenacting specifically that you can't really make your gear because the gear was factory mass produced and it's hard for an individual without the tooling to um, make stuff that looks like it's factory mass produced machine made stuff. But that is not always the case. Hard, but not impossible. Actually, I think, Chris, you were showing me a tunic that somebody had made. Uh, themselves uh, a few days ago and it was really impressive the construction looked dead on well you know we i think we look at like a, an m43 cap that is made by somebody who's highly regarded as a maker of these things and it's like wow this person uh, has this unbelievable skill they can make this hat but the reality is uh i'm not trying to detract from the from the skill of anybody who's patterned uh garments and and makes stuff for reenactors but when you realize that it's basically just a matter of cutting fabric to the right shape and size and yeah. assembling it, you know, it's not, it isn't a magic trick. Sure. I feel like there's, uh, I know there's some other hobbies, you know, like LARPing and cosplay where people like make their own costumes. And there's like a lot of pride in that. And I mean, I feel like reenacting might have something to learn from these other hobbies, you know, where people actually, there's a, there's a strong emphasis on making stuff. Or I think e that's definitely true. I think there should be a stronger emphasis on do-it-yourself and reenacting. Or even other time periods. I feel like other time periods, uh, there is a stronger emphasis on, I feel like, in Civil War, like, they sell kits, and then the reenactor sews it themselves at home, you know? It would be kind of cool if somebody did that for, like, M34 caps. You well, know? it's it's hard because, you know, the a lot of the Civil War stuff, pre-20th century stuff, is hand-sewn. Yeah, So yeah. It, it literally is something that you can do sitting around with a needle and thread. Sure. Um, you know, an M34 cap requires... Um, a sewing machine it requires an ability to install the ventilation eyelets and stuff so it, there is a little bit of like kind of tooling involved you know and you need to have this machine but uh i mean look <clears throat> to be honest i think every reenactor should have a sewing machine i really do think that sure i second that um i have one i just need to learn how to use it <laughs> yeah and it's it's not hard the thing is and we'll probably be returning to this theme like time and again um is that there are tutorials on YouTube that can teach you how to do like almost anything that we're describing here. You know, yeah. you can, it has never been easier to uh, ha basically have somebody show you how to do this stuff because there is tons and tons of, of tutorial on how to DIY content on YouTube that you can access. Sure. We live in the information age, you know, like say what you want about the, the modern world, but this is one of the benefits of it. Um, and look, it's not just uh, cloth 
kit items that you can kind of DIY here. There is a whole range of skills that you can learn with, with metal that apply to metal equipment items oh, that I, you use for reenacting. I was going to say leather. I feel like leather is easier than metal in a way, you know? Like a friend of ours was talking about how he's getting into leather working, and it's it's rather easy, uh, w- like he says, and I, I believe him. I do. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, that's an area where, you know, so much, so many YouTube videos, and it's really just a matter of uh, getting a needle that has an eye big enough for the wax linen thread, getting the wax linen thread, and figuring out how to make the holes. You know, if you're, if you're making something from scratch, if you're just repairing something, the stitch holes are already there for you to use. Um, something like a, uh, a bayonet frog, you could absolutely make. You know, it could be a challenge maybe to find the exact right type of leather, to find the right type of rivets, but it like it can be done. This stuff is not, um, it's just, it's really not rocket science. Sure, or the um, the enlisted belt, like the M44 belt, you know, that's easy, but like the, the standard with the tongue enlisted belt, you could make that. I mean, it's, I know you have to find like the, the correct grade of leather you know to make the tongue and then to make the regular belt but i feel like that's that's almost the hard part you know sure i mean it's you know sewing on the uh punching the holes sewing on the tongue sewing the the folded over little part where the hook goes it's, yeah and they make the hardware you could buy the hardware from kelly's militaria or like hiki shop you know and they're they're fine sure so yeah um you know, to, on the theme of like the the metal equipment items that I mentioned, uh, even just to be able to paint your own helmets, your own canteen cups, your own gas mask canister and mess kit, this is like a really useful skill. And probably there are people out there who just do this as a matter of routine and take it for granted. But I have had people um, act totally stymied at the suggestion that they spray paint their own stuff. Sure. Well, I feel like. I've tried spray painting things in the past and like the paint has run or it looks like shit, you know, but I, I feel like, again, it's like practice makes perfect, you know, like something that I feel like you can practice on is like maybe if you take like a bad repro or, you know, not even a bad repro, like a repro or like a post-war item, you know, and you could practice on that. I mean, there are some tricks to it, you know, and, uh, there are, if you just go at it without knowing anything about it, yeah, you can have runs in the paint. Um, you can have like a, a weird texture that you don't want. Uh, you know, um, you could have the, the paint not adhere well because you didn't prep the surface prior to painting it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would encourage people, you know, to look for information how to use spray paint. There are tricks to it. It is a skill. Um, but once you have that skill, you're good to go and... Um, you know, it's, you can learn how to, uh, remove paint before repainting, whether you're going to use a chemical stripper or do it mechanically, sand the paint off or whatever. Um, you know, then maybe you want to, like, if it's a steel helmet that is, you've made very shiny, you want to hit that up with some bluing solution before you paint it so that when the paint inevitably scratches and chips, it doesn't reveal like a mirror looking surface. Um, you know, it just even something as basic as using acetone or a solvent to remove oils or your own fingerprints from something before you blew it or before you yeah that was it. a that was a big one that actually you you taught me chris recently because i was working on like a bluing a, a shovel and uh you recommended the acetone which uh i it it helped a lot yeah and the, you know but but you know once you uh once you know the skills then it's like you know, you, you can do, you can, if you can repaint a, uh, if you can blue a shovel, you can blue a helmet, you could probably even blue a firearm or a replica firearm or a part, you know, blue uh, a helmet before uh, painting it or whatever. Sure, totally. Um, you know, there are some, there there is, in addition to there being like a learning curve with all of this stuff, you might need to get some tools, you know, with, with uh, spray painting helmets or gas mask canisters, you've got to find the paint. 
Um, there are available at many hardware stores paints that are equivalent to specific paint colors that were used for World War II equipment. There are also vendors who sell uh, specially mixed spray paint that is, uh, you know, chemically color matched exactly to some original color or thing. Can I just say, Paul went out for the testers uh, sack bottle green model master. Yeah, the uh, the SAC uh, bomber green. Uh, That's was a, it. Was a color that reenactors used for decades for uh, belt buckles and especially for tunic buttons. And unfortunately, the entire I think the entire testers uh, model masters line of model paints has sadly been discontinued. So. Um, you know, it's it's become a little bit harder. But look, there are other types of uh, paint that I use that I buy at the hardware store. There's like a Krylon camouflage color. There's a Rust-Oleum Deep yep. Forest Green. I've used both of those uh, products to repaint stuff that I use for my kit with fantastic results. You know, like a one-to-one match to original stuff. And I, I do like, you know, I'll give a plug to, here to uh, 1944 Militaria. They sell a... Uh, field gray spray paint, Feldgrau Dunkel, that I've used for helmets, I've used for gas mask canisters, and I think it d- does an absolutely fantastic yeah, job. Yeah, that stuff rules. I've, I've used that stuff before. Um, I mean, you know, speaking of like metal equipment items, even something as simple as being able to install a helmet liner, for someone who's never done that before it can like seem daunting but it's not it's not that hard it's not that hard and you know once you've once you've done one and know how to do it then of course you'll be more confident to install more helmet liners in the future and like you know uh swapping out helmet liners installing helmet liners in shells this is something that reenactors do yeah and uh you know if you have to mail your helmet and liner to somebody else and have them mail it back installed you're going to spend forty dollars maybe just on the shipping yeah yeah, let alone the cost, you know? You know, this, it's another example I know I've harped on this so much of why it's valuable to, to be in a reenactment group because um, if you've got some guy, whether he's local or regional, if you get together every now and again, someone who knows how to do this stuff and who can teach you how to do it, teach others how to do it, that's just super valuable. Sure, totally. Um, you know, and there are, there are certain tools, not just the paints, but um, certain tools with... Uh, metal type stuff i find a uh, a bench grinder with a wire wheel attachment to be a really handy tool to have because the wire wheel is so efficient at mechanically stripping paint is that what you recommended that i get uh when we were talking about that helmet project yeah you i definitely think that you should get one of these at your house you'll find the wire wheel to be so incredibly useful for reenactment stuff whether it's removing rust from a bayonet scabbard or uh, removing rust from screws or hardware or uh, even like removing Moving uh, Bondo from a reproduction yeah. Chinese helmet shell before you want to apply the paint or whatever. It's just, um, I love the wire wheel for, for rust removal and for treating uh, metal before I paint it. And uh, even the, the bench grinder, like, you know, like I have a bench grinder that has kind of two uh, spinning wheels. One of them is the wire wheel for removing the paint and the rust. And then the other one is a grinding wheel. And I can use that to reshape metal. I can use it to sharpen knives or uh, sharpen other tools. I've found like countless uh, reenactment applications for a grinding wheel. Like uh, an example would be that uh, I had a a shovel with a square blade that I wanted to convert to a shovel with a pointed blade to go into the uh, pre-war Czech style um, carrier that I wanted to you use. You did that with the grinder? Nice. I did it, I did it with, a, I think it was a bandsaw, and then, uh, you know, used the grinder to kind of uh, dress those edges and get like a factory type edge on it. And it was a project that only took me a couple of minutes, but... Uh, had I had I tried to find someone to do that for me, it could have been an expensive task. Sure, totally. We're talking about this, I think, in the context of uh, camping, but uh, knife sharpening. That's weren't you saying you can buy like a sharpening stone at Dollar Tree for like a a dollar twenty five? Yeah, I think I I use a sharpening stone that came from Dollar Tree. It costs a dollar twenty five. I'm sure that there are people out there who are some kind of like a sharpening stone purists who will insist that like only you know they use 50 different grades of the finest japanese uh sharpening stones every time that they sharpen a knife i i don't find that uh, to be necessary for me <laughs> and the level of sharpness that i'm going for i mean i'm not really uh 
shaving with these things. If it's sharp enough to be slicey when it's time to uh, cut up an onion, I'm happy with that. Um, but yeah, Ben, we, we were talking about this because, uh, you know, you had asked me, you're like, do you have the ability to sharpen knives? And it's like, I do. I'm not super good at it. I need to get better at it. Mm. Like you need to learn how to do it. Like you have knives. You have a lot of knives. No, well, there is a Dollar Tree in my town, bud. And it, like you know, whether whether you get a, a good sharpening stone, you know, whether you get an old sharpening stone or or whatever, you know, there's so many different ways uh, to use a sharpening stone. But it's you know, there's there's uh, plenty of information online, YouTube videos. They'll show you how to sharpen a knife, and you could do it. You know, you can do it yourself. Um, another thing that I've learned in the last, uh, you know, five, seven years or so is uh, techniques with regard to metalwork that involve heat. And by that, I mean uh, soldering, uh, torch brazing. Uh, this has just been like an unbelievable game changer. And it's not something that requires like a tremendous investment to get started. You can get a propane torch for cheap at the hardware store and you can get, um, you know, solder is super cheap braze. You can get it. You need a chemical called flux. Basically, if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, these are techniques for joining metal. Um, and it just has so many applications in reenactment, whether it's putting a prong on the back of a piece of insignia, um, reaffixing a, a loop on the handle of a, the top of a mess kit or you know even fixing something maybe even like a button or you know it's fixing connections on a field phone there's just like a million applications for this type of stuff in reenacting and I think that this is kind of a lost skill for a lot of men in our society. When I, I, I collect stuff from World War II, I collect a variety of different stuff, and very, very often I find stuff that's been well used, well taken care of, and has repairs and mendings and has solder repairs. And nowadays I feel like very few people know how to do this. I think in the past a lot of people know how to do sure. it. Sure, sure, that makes sense to me. And it's not, it's not hard, you know, you get like soldering is super easy. Uh, you know, like for example, um, I had a, uh, a belt buckle that was a, a pre-war two-piece style with a roundel on the front and the roundel fell off. And at one time that would have meant, uh, okay, time for me to get a new belt buckle. But just knowing how to be able to solder this thing, you just put some flux on there, which is like a paste that uh, kind of allows it to be clean and nice for the solder to stick to it. Heat it up with a torch, uh, touch the solder to it. The solder touches the hot metal and melts and flows and creates a very strong mechanical bond between the two pieces of metal and, and it's done. Is that the cool uh, front hile buckle? Yeah, I'm talking about a buckle that uh, I don't actually really use for my reenactment impression, but is uh, kind of a pre-war uh, other style of a buckle that I that I think is cool. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and like uh, just recently, just in the last year or so, I've started using aluminum brazing rods, which I didn't know these things were even a thing um, until I don't know how I figured this out. But I, I started to see some YouTube videos about how to repair aluminum items with aluminum braze rods. And I was just like uh, totally astounded by what the possibilities were. I bought some of these rods on Amazon for cheap and I used a propane torch and uh you know, as an example of, of what I can do with these, I've been using the same flask in my reenactment canteen for the last 20 years. And the, uh, there's like a stud on the bottom of the canteen cover that wears against the flask. And finally, uh, after years, it, it had formed a dent there that was deep enough that it actually started to leak. The bottle started to leak out of the bottom. And I was able to uh, fill that dent with aluminum braze material and, and get it to be watertight again in a matter of minutes. And, you know, I'm hoping that canteen will soldier on for another 20 years. That's cool, dude. That's really cool. Um there's like no limit really to the kinds of skills that you can pick up for do it yourself that relate to reenacting. Um, there are some like more sophisticated types of restoration, one of them being firearm restoration. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bridge too far for me, but, uh, that's, it's, I, I find it very cool. I've seen some awesome videos, you know, I saw one where like a guy pulled a Carcano out of a wall in Italy, I think it was, and restored it. So it looks like new. 
uh, firearms are, are simple machines. And uh, there are aspects of uh, metal work that apply to all kinds of stuff, you know, removing corrosion, uh, you know, smoothing out a surface, uh, refinishing a metal surface, and the same thing with the wood stock of the gun, like, yeah. um, you know, <clears throat> using steam to uh, kind of pop out dings and dents in the stock. Um, you know, people are going to cringe to hear me say this, but, you know, depending on what kind of, you might be dealing with like a reproduction firearm or whatever. So sanding the stock, um, you know, refinishing the stock, whether you're using boiled linseed oil or stain or whatever it is that you're using. Um, these are not, these are not skills that take 20 years to learn by any means. And, and, and that's not to detract. I know there are some absolute wizards who can, um, you know, do things with regard to firearms or any other specific category of thing that I couldn't even dream about. Um, you know, real artists, real craftsmen, there are such people, but a lot of basic repairs are just, they're just that they're basic and anybody can do them. You know, sometimes it's a matter of knowing what kind of tool to use, having the right tools. Like, uh, I bought a, a nice set of screwdrivers recently. It's like, a, a screwdriver that has interchangeable bits and the bits are ground in such a way so that the the bit is parallel where it enters the screw. That's different from like most screwdrivers that you'll buy that taper to a point. And uh, gunsmiths use these type of screwdrivers. I use them on all, all kinds of stuff that I tinker with. Um, this was probably like a, a $25 or maybe a $40 investment or something like that. But it has just been such a big... Uh, help for me to have the the right screwdriver bit for every job when I'm working on something like a firearm or something like that. That's awesome, dude. That's really cool. Of course, it's you know it's not just uh, firearms that you can learn to repair. I've um, I've been tinkering with typewriters. I've been tinkering with sewing machines. I've been tinkering with cameras. Um, I get a lot of people asking me to fix their typewriters and I, I don't i don't put myself out there as like a typewriter repair man because there is definitely a limit to my skill there's a limit to the parts that i have access to to the tools that i have and indeed i do take my uh a very often basically i mean probably more often than i'd like i'd say anyway i kind of give up on a repair and take it to the professional typewriter repair guy um, especially for really tough cases where the typewriter has drop damage or, you know, it, it's a more sophisticated repair, but there's a lot of things that can go wrong with a typewriter over time that are very, very easy to fix. And, uh, you know, I learned how to do these things, uh, by myself, you know, I, I just learned it either by looking up information online about how to fix it or just kind of carefully observing, uh, why something isn't working and looking at the parts that are supposed to make that work and figuring out, okay, this is loose. It needs to be tightened. This is binding up and needs to be lubricated or this is disconnected. It needs to be connected or whatever it is. And that oftentimes is enough to fix it. That's cool, dude. I feel like your camera experience also bears, uh, you know, some worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I love restoring old box cameras. I have a lot of box cameras um, that I use that I have restored and they're, they're pretty simple things. Um, it's definitely possible to screw up when you're trying to restore something like this. And that's something I kind of learned the hard way early on. What's the trick with the mirror? You know, you could buy like a cheap mirror and you could like replace the mirror inside a, a box camera. Well, I, I restore a lot of different brands of, of antique box cameras. Um, I like to use the box cameras for reenacting. We, we did do an episode about reenactment photography a long time ago now where I talked about uh, photos using the box cameras. But Kodak box cameras from 100 years ago almost invariably now have useless viewfinders because the viewfinder contains a mirror that has a silvered surface and that silvered surface uh, tones and basically e like evaporates over time. You know, a lot of times the mirrors now, they either are just kind of a matte black or they're just a clear piece of glass. And so... In order to restore these, I, uh, I replaced the viewfinder mirrors. So I found, I, I, this was through trial and error, basically. I was thinking, all right, I'm going to need to find some mirror material. I know what kind of mirror this is. There's like 
mirror uh, stuff that has kind of the reflection on the back side as you look at it and or on the front side um, and I know how thick the glass is supposed to be I need to find something that's the same kind of mirror and the same thickness of glass and in fact I found that the cheap uh, hands mirrors at Dollar Tree that I was buying for a dollar have the right thickness of glass and it's the right kind of mirror and then I bought a glass cutter at the hardware store, watched some YouTube videos about how to use a glass cutter because I'd never used one before, and uh, very quickly was able to whip up a whole ton of mirrors. So now I have a little stock of replacement mirrors ready to go. Uh, when I get a Kodak box camera, I just got one in the mail today, in fact. And um, I shake the camera, and I can hear that the mirror, not only is the mirror going to have no... Uh, mirror surface on it but it's not even attached it's just floating around inside the camera so I'll take the camera apart take the f perished old useless uh, mirror part out of there install the new mirror put the camera back together and then of course you know clean all the glass clean the lenses and cleaning the lenses is something that was a skill that that took me some time to learn it's shocking it's absolutely shocking and insane how easy it is to scratch glass when you're trying really hard not to scratch glass <laughs> And it's the same like with mirrors, like some box cameras have like a, a silvered metal mirror instead of a glass mirror. And it's like that silver surface, that reflective mirror surface on the metal mirrors is like so, so fragile somehow, you know, I don't even understand it. But, uh, you know, there you got to be careful. You got to use the right tools. You know, you kind of develop a feel for it, a touch, and you can clean this stuff up. And uh, I've probably restored... I have a bag of co perished Kodak lenses that I've taken out of box cameras that I've fixed. And there's got to be at least 50 mirrors in that bag now. And, you know, I probably, I've probably restored, I don't know, 150 box cameras or something like that. That's awesome, time. dude. That's an awesome tally to have. Um, and then the sewing machine thing that you alluded to before, Ben, also, in addition to using the sewing machines, I kind of figured out how to bring these things back from the dead, again, by what, just by watching YouTube videos and looking up stuff online. What was the trick with the finish? You know, you had so, these things, you know, sometimes they looked ground dug and you applied like a product to the metal it's, finish. It's sewing machine oil. Mm. You just buff it down with sewing machine oil and it brings back mm. the shine. And it's, it's you know, there's a very small, from what I understand... <clears throat> There's very small amounts of solvents and uh, cleaning chemicals in sewing machine oil. It's not like a pure oil. And, and that little bit of solvent or whatever it is helps to um, bring back the old finish. And I, and I use uh, similar techniques with typewriters. With typewriters, a lot of times typewriters have like nicotine grime on them from someone smoking at the typewriter for decades. Um, I will use... Uh, Dawn dish detergent in very hot water and a, and a clean cotton cloth and just wipe that stuff off and it makes it makes a tremendous difference you know uh, you can use for like the inner workings of a typewriter I kind of make a solution using uh, like a, a, a solvent like mineral spirits and uh, and sewing machine oil and so it goes on there the solvent breaks up any old lubrication that might be dried on there and the the oil kind of lubricates and is left behind after the solvent evaporates um, you know helps keep everything protected and lubricated and it's uh, it's just amazing sometimes what these simple products that you can get at any hardware store or at the at the craft store in some cases can do sure totally and i feel like in addition to the pride that we talked about earlier the effect of you know I feel like this ties in with other episodes we've done on, you know, like properly aging a uniform and just like wearing it in certain ways, but just like the effect of, you know, repairs that you do yourself combined with, you know, proper aging and natural wear. It's just, it looks awesome on sure. reenactment gear. You know, we can go to when we're talking about uh, DIY uh, skills beyond just kit items, right? Like things like uh, how to start a fire, how to cook in the field, how and where to pitch your tent. These are skills. And these are like val very valuable skills that every reenactor, you know, should learn. We learn these mostly by doing in the process of reenacting. Um, but like you just, you can't be afraid to like jump in and, and learn something like this, you know? I feel I made this joke before, um, but I refer to reenacting or I, I have referred to it as the fucked up Boy Scouts. 
and in a way it, it does feel like it is that you know but I, I take these skills for granted sometimes sure 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 it's until like until i encounter someone who doesn't know how to do it then it's like oh yeah this isn't something that i was born with this is something that i learned yeah totally i mean I've, we, we've talked recently about like starting a fire you know that's that's that takes some skill. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this rolling their eyes and thinking, okay, well, uh, everybody knows how to start a fire, you know, unless you're some kind of, uh, you know, mentally uh, deranged, uh, you know. Well, I feel like that's going into almost like a socio-political, urban, sure. rural divide, you know. Like, yeah, I'm certain there's whole communities out there where every kid knows how to start a fire, you know, and do all these sort of outdoorsy stuff but you know people in suburbia or urban areas you know might might may have lost that and you know no diss to them but it's just it's it's just a matter of way of life you know and you managed to put that in like the diplomatic way that i was like struggling to find when i couldn't find my words <laughs> very good very good um but no the reality is there are people that have never you know there are adults that have never started a campfire and um, if you've got logs and a fire pit and matches, what do you do? Right. And it's like, no, there's like a process. There's a thing that you have to do. Yeah, totally. And, totally. Uh, and having that is, is a valuable skill. My, my father taught me how to make a fire when I was a kid. And that's a skill that has, uh, been very helpful for me countless times yeah but i mean if you grew up in an apartment building that has no fireplace you know and you've lived all your life in a major metropolitan area like maybe you're not learning how to start a fire so sure. yeah and then like how to cook in the field you know it's different cooking over a fire is different from cooking at home and um i'm not saying that people should be able to make a beef wellington out there but even just like knowing when you're frying onions or bacon when it's too hot and you need to move it away from the fire or like when it's not hot enough and it's never going to get done um you know when you might have to add more oil to the pan or uh whatever you know these are kind of just super basic things that um are really valuable when you're just trying to make basic meals and get by in a field setting sure totally and like, you know, I, I think back, it really wasn't that long ago that I was setting up my Zalpon tent and I set it up in a place where, uh, I mean, I didn't really realize this, it, the sky opened up, it started to rain and my nice and dry, the tent didn't leak, but my nice and dry spot that I had chosen now basically turned into a stream and I was, I was laying in two inches of water and you know the the first time that, that something like that happens to you is like the last time that something like that happens to you because yeah. you realize what you have to do next time and you do it differently next time and it's and it's better i mean i think i told the story on a recent episode of how at uh, the conneat event years ago i made the mistake of pitching my tent on at the bottom of a hill and a storm rolled in, and, I fa and next thing I knew it, I was bailing for my life with a uh, with my hat. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So. So you know, thinking about uh, I, I guess kind of like a final note, a personal note. Uh, you know, I'm always trying to uh, develop new skills. I'm always trying to learn how to do different things, how to get better at DIY. Um, is something that I, I definitely want to get better at is sharpening knives and axes. You know, I have some some level of ability, but I want to be able to take a uh, a decrepit uh, tool and make it a sharp and usable tool again. Um, ben, over the weekend, you and I were uh, kind of looking through some an old shed and uh, pulled an axe out of there that probably hasn't been used in decades that has big chips out of the cutting edge and is very pitted with rust. And uh, I think that's going to be a good sort of a, a practice one for me as I try to uh, get better in, with this skill. I can't remember if I took that out of my car or if it's at my house. So I, I want to get that to you, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. that I, did, I, I forgot to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. What about you, Ben? Is there uh, anything that you've been thinking about skill-wise that you feel like you could maybe uh, improve on? The aforementioned knife sharpening. I mean, I feel like I could always get better at cooking and whatnot. Um, and also, too, 
again, a goal for this winter is sewing machine. Excellent. Gotta, yeah, I think I've got to keep it realistic, you know? I haven't done a, a sewing machine project in a little while, and I, I think I should uh, try to do one again. It, it can be surprising how hard it can be to stitch in a straight line. And I, that's like, I need to get a little better at that. Sometimes there is like a helpful aspect, you know, like on a weird psychological level of like working on a project with a friend, you know, doing like a, like a group project where you get together and you're like, okay, we're going to like, instead of bullshitting, we're going to like do a, do a skill tonight. We're going to like sew something, you know, that can be kind of fun, actually. That can definitely be fun. Yeah, it's cool when uh, fixing stuff can be a group activity. Sometimes uh, some aspects of DIY kind of need to be a solo activity. Like, sure. uh, you know, I make um, reproduction rubber stamps. I make the artwork for that. It's kind of like graphic design. I use some basic graphic design software that you can get equivalents for for free um, and kind of taught myself how to do this stuff. It's it's really not that hard. Um but, you know, that's something where I, I kind of have to sit at a at a computer and focus. And sure. uh, it doesn't feel like reenacting when I'm doing it. But when I can print out something, whether it's a label that I can use for reenacting or, you know, something to make a rubber stamp or even the paperwork that I fill out, that's its own whole own level of DIY and skills that, that we didn't even really touch on. So. Mm, totally. It's one of those events where you can't really describe it, you sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Ben, it looks like we're just about out of time. Special big hearty thanks to all the Patreon supporters. We really couldn't do it without you. Um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, uh, please look for the Reenactors Quarter on Patreon. And uh, so you can sign up for as little as two bucks a month. And we would really appreciate your support very much. A sincere thank you to the Patreon community. All right. So then uh, to Ben and everybody else out there, stay safe. I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. <laughs>